From the Kennan Institute in Washington, D.C., welcome to Kennan X, a podcast on our never-ending quest to understand Russia, Ukraine, and the surrounding region. I'm your host, Jill Doherty. The collective result of these kinds of attacks could be a cyber Pearl Harbor, an attack that would cause physical destruction and the loss of life, an attack that would paralyze and shock the nation. That was former U.S. Defense Secretary Leon Panetta in 2012. We've been warned about a possible cyber Pearl Harbor for decades. But what exactly is a cyber attack? As you know, there have been a number of attacks carried out by Russia against the U.S. Meg King, director of the Science and Technology Innovation Program at the Woodrow Wilson Center. There have been attacks that were in an effort to provide disinformation during our elections. There were attacks that were carried out to collect intelligence, presumably, against our government agencies and our private sector. And there are a wide variety of other attacks that have happened in the past decade plus that Russia has carried out. Let me walk you through the three kinds of incidents or harms that can occur in cyberspace. One is confidentiality. So that's when you gain access to data that was supposed to be private. And that is very much the cyber espionage model. The second kind is integrity. And that's when you manipulate data or systems. So the first example we have of that in the world, which makes this whole enterprise complicated, is the Stuxnet worm that was carried out by the Israelis in the United States. So the Stuxnet worm manipulated the speed and the pressure of the centrifuges in Iran related to the nuclear program. The third kind of attack is availability, and that's when you deny access to data or systems. So the Iranians, in response to Stuxnet, as an example, carried out a variety of denial of service attacks against U.S. financial organizations and banks a couple of years later. Could you take me inside this process? So you start with target reconnaissance. You have some sort of task, let's just say from your president, and your group goes and you basically collect information about the kind of target. So what kind of computers do they use? And a lot of this is available because the internet was built to share information and it's open source. You can search these things. So what kind of computers are they using? What kind of software and what version are they using? What providers that most of the people who listen to this may not have heard of? What providers are providing the support behind the scenes? What servers are providing the connectivity? All those sorts of things tell a story. So you carry out reconnaissance on your target and you try to figure out the easiest way to get in. So once you figure out all of those things, then you develop the kind of software that you need to enter a system. And then once you have developed that, then you try to get authorization. So you say to the computer network that you're trying to access in whatever way that is, which could be through a mobile phone that connects to a network. It could be through a regular desktop. There are just a number of ways that could happen, which is why cybersecurity is so hard. You need to be authorized. So you say, computer, authorize me. It says yes, because you've gotten either the password right or the credentials or a combination of those things right. Then you enter a system. Once you enter, you have to be pretty careful not to alert that you're on the system. 
So you're quiet and you search around and it's more intelligence collection. And then you establish what is called command and control. And that's when you say, okay, I've gotten in through hypothetically the email network. What I really want is I want to go and find all those spreadsheets with all the numbers that they're going to spend next year on their cybersecurity budget, for example. You go, you find it, you try to quietly pull it off the system, and then you make sure quietly, if you can, that you can cover your tracks. Mm-hmm. Meg, when I look at this right from the beginning, one of the complications is that we have a number of different actors. We have the state, which is doing, let's say, intelligence spying. We have people who are maybe allied with the state but aren't openly working for the state, but they're useful. They get information. Then we have these cyber criminals, the ransomware people who are just in it for the money. So could you run me through who does this type of thing? And is it clear always who exactly is involved? Well, again, I go back to the tactics, techniques, and procedures. It's not really that difficult. We know who is doing it because we know all of the signatures that they use. It's more about it's hard and takes time to attribute if you're going to try and go through the legal system to indict. So that takes time because you want to make sure everything is accurate. But also it matters when you announce something because if someone's in your system, you don't want to just let them know that we know who it is. So we are very capable attributing, it's more a matter of when to announce the attribution. Тем не менее, в российско-американских отношениях накопилось много вопросов, которые требуют обсуждения на высшем уровне. Which brings us to the recent summit between Russian President Vladimir Putin and US President Joe Biden, where cyber attacks were center stage. Back to the Wilson Center's Meg King. There are a lot of questions about what exactly President Putin and President Biden agreed to, but can you just run us through that? What was the agreement? So as far as we know, the agreement was to allow a technical working group comprised of both U.S. and Russian experts in the information communications technology space to have a conversation about the bad actors, the criminal groups who are carrying out ransomware attacks from within the borders of Russia, but also hopefully to have broader conversations about cybersecurity threats from the Russian government to the U.S. government as well. I was really struck by President Biden at the news conference when he said, I pointed out to President Putin that we have significant cyber capability and he knows it. So my question was, okay, what does Putin know? So there is a concept of offensive cyber and defensive cyber. Defensive cyber is when you're trying to make sure that you do everything you can to protect your network from being accessed by another nation. Sometimes in order to have a good defense, and sometimes because we're carrying out our own intelligence operations, we are either in the networks of other countries and we can see things happening or we stumble upon an activity happening, and I'm sure that's happened in the Russian context. I'm sure they've witnessed things that we've done. So it's not a surprise, partly because they've seen what we've done, and likewise, we've seen what they've done. But also, a lot of the technology is still developed in the United States. And Putin would definitely know 
that there are significant capabilities both in the cybersecurity world, in the artificial intelligence world, in the emerging technologies world that we have capabilities that are pretty extensive. Another expert watching the summit closely was Pavel Sharikov, director of the Center for Applied Research at the Russian Academy of Sciences Institute of USA in Canada. He's one of several experts who contributed to an exploratory paper for Harvard University's Belfer Center, issued just before the summit. U.S.-Russia contention in cyberspace are rules of the road necessary or possible. You began with a sobering question, and that was, can the U.S. and Russia contention in cyberspace cause the two nuclear superpowers to stumble into war? And I was really struck by that, that this is the stakes here. Yes, I think this is one of those issues where you cannot be too careful. And wherever you see a risk, wherever there is an opportunity to inflict some damage, You have to do your best to avoid that. One of the things that you point out very early in this paper is that the U.S. and Russia literally speak a different language when it comes to cyber. You mentioned Americans usually talk about cybersecurity, and then the word that the Russians most often use is information security. And I'm presuming that's informationnaya bezopasnost, correct? Yes. One of the tasks that we were asked to do at the Belfer Center report was to find a common denominator. And obviously, Russia and the United States, just like I would say many other countries, have very different approach to dealing with these issues. And it is true that Russian government and Russian society pays much more attention to the contents of the communication, to the contents of the information transmitted through the networks, transmitted through the infrastructure. And if you look at especially most recent Russian legislation and Russian regulation introduced by Russian government, you would see how Russian government tries to make sure that Russian audience receives only what they call proper information. So basically limiting the access to what they think is improper or damaging to the Russian sovereignty or whatever. While in the United States, the approach is more, and I'm saying this as a person who was researching American policy from Moscow for a long time and had a couple of opportunities to have some fellowships and spend, well, probably a year or two years all in all in the United States, mostly in Washington, D.C. The United States approached this issue as the safety of communication. So unless our connection right now is secure, nobody interferes, we can share whatever information we can with each other, cybersecurity is guaranteed, regardless of what is the content of information that we're discussing. It's not about cyber or information security per se. This is about general political relations and general political environment. The level of this cooperation would be much higher if the general Russian-American relations would be better or at least more constructive, stable and predictable. You use the phrase digital iron curtain. And you went on, if I understand it correctly, you said the Russian government perceives individual freedoms in cyberspace as a threat. 
And then they tend to use these means of communication, try to limit citizens' activities online, which you said is like the Chinese approach, creating a virtual border. Digital Iron Curtain is a metaphor, obviously, which refers to the Cold War. And again, there were so many parallels in current deterioration of Russian-American relations and the Cold War, the Soviet-American conflict, which lasted for almost half a century. I think that the question is not, can Russia and the United States find common denominator on cyber, but how should they do this? Because cyberspace has been there for a little over 30 years. And that is a very short period of time if we look at the history of international relations or history of humanity. And obviously, whenever something new appears, it takes some time to work out the norms how to deal with this. And in my opinion, the first decade of development of Internet, Internet was a total mess in the 90s. It was really very new and unexperienced. Then certain trends appeared and certain trends came as those that somehow managed and put some order on cyberspace. And right now, the governments are engaged in a very, very tense discussions on how to deal with this cyberspace. And I believe that eventually these norms would be established. Obviously, these norms will be set, but it is really important to discuss what these norms should be about and what these norms should be. At the summit, President Biden raised 16 areas that should be off limits, and they were really critical infrastructure, things that affect directly citizens, health care, electric, water, food, etc. Is that someplace that the two sides could begin to agree? That's a start, obviously. The problem with this list is that this list cannot be enough. If we go into this road and we discuss the targets that should not be attacked with cyber weapons, President Biden and the United States in general should be ready to provide Russian authorities much more information about the specifics, the details of these infrastructures. And some of this information might be sensitive or even classified, and I'm not sure that the United States would be willing to share this kind of information with Russia. But the list itself, as it was published on the internet, as I saw it at least, clearly is not enough. The other problem is that Russia and the United States, the legacy of the Cold War is that there should always be certain parity in Russian-American relations. And whatever measures are taken, they have to be reciprocal. When Russia and the United States agree on nuclear weapons, they pose pretty much similar threats to each other. But when President Biden gives a list of infrastructures critical for American society. I'm not sure that the same list would be as critical to Russian society as the list that President Biden gave to President Putin. And this is the huge problem of asymmetry, because these problems are constantly asymmetrical. But what are the Russian <laughs> critical issues? What would be on their list? Well, even if the same 16 infrastructures, obviously Russia has the transport and healthcare and everything, but they might not be as 
damaging for Russian society. I mean, the damage inflicted on this particular infrastructure may not be as critical for Russian society as it is for American society. Just to start that, Russian population is almost twice as small as American Russia. is only a little less than 150 million people, while in the United States there are almost 350 million people, the population. So at least based on this fact, the list of Russian infrastructures would not be on the same level of parity as in the United States. What President Biden meant by giving this list is that Russian government, he expected President Putin to commit that Russian government would not attack these infrastructures with cyber weapons. And Russian government never acknowledged that it basically even possess any military cyber capabilities. And the difficulty here is that you cannot distinguish between a state-sponsored and not state-sponsored attack. Again, comparing to the nuclear weapons, if a nuclear weapon is launched from Russian territory against American territory, you can be almost 100% sure that the Russian government sanctioned the launch. And the chance of an authorized launch is nearly zero. But when a commercial or even a government infrastructure, critical infrastructure, is attacked, you cannot be 100% sure that whether it was the state-sponsored attack, a military unit, or it was a ransomware attack, or it was some hackers, or it was a third party, or there was Chinese pretending to be Russians, or everything else. So my idea was that there should be a certain protocol how Russia and the United States attribute specific cyber attacks as state-sponsored or not state-sponsored. And there might be a couple of approaches. So we agree that it is impossible to distinguish the cyber attack by saying who attacked, because you never know who is pressing the keys on the keyboard on the other side. So the first approach is the targets, which are attacked. You presume that if a critical infrastructure is attacked, then it's a state-sponsored attack because another state tries to inflict certain damage on the society. The other approach is by defining the damage inflicted. A miner, a hacker, cannot destroy the whole infrastructure. The whole infrastructure might be destroyed only due to a very coordinated and massive cyber attack. And the third approach is by distinguishing the tools which are used. And this is, by the way, I believe how the United States distinguish these advanced persistent threats like state-sponsored and non-state-sponsored, the behavior, the number of tools used for attacks. Neither of the approaches is perfect. Neither of the approaches excludes the other two. But when President Biden gave the list, he presumed, I believe, that the idea was that he would distinguish a state-sponsored attack from a non-state-sponsored attack by saying that if these particular infrastructures are attacked, we would consider an attack to be a state-sponsored attack. Again, this approach is not perfect, but this is the first step towards discussing, towards negotiating, and basically agreeing. If I was in the Russian government, I would look at this list very carefully. I would make a similar list of Russian infrastructures and negotiate how we compare and how we make sure that these infrastructures are in certain parity and certain attribution protocol, as I call it, that would basically make sure that this particular threat is state-sponsored or not state-sponsored. 
But you point out that Russia traditionally has not acknowledged that essentially cyber instruments are a legitimate part of the nation's military toolbox, as you put it. So why don't they? I believe this is the idea of Russian approach to international information security. And you can find a lot of explanations in the documents of foreign ministry and many others. The idea was, I think, formulated probably some 20 years ago when the level of technologies was much less, when the individual use of cyber technologies was much lower. And the idea was to prohibit on the international legal level the very existence of cyber weapon, of the very idea that cyber technologies might be used as a military offense. So right now, Russian position is consistent with those ideas. And the idea is that unless you prohibit cyber weapon internationally by international law, the countries won't be able to use it. And the countries would not be able to use their right on self-defense on cyber weapons. I'm critical on this approach because I think the idea is not preventing the conflict in cyberspace, but the idea is in preventing the conflict in general. And it doesn't matter how the conflict goes with what means, cyber means or physical means or nuclear means. Obviously, you have to prevent all forms of conflict. Mm-hmm. Well, you do talk about confidence-building measures, which were used during the Cold War and right now. What could those be in cyber? Well, first of all, it's really weird to say this, but in 2013, President Obama and President Putin signed an agreement on the G8. Remember, there was G8 before it became G7. Mm-hmm. They signed an agreement on confidence-building measures in cybersecurity. And basically, the countries agreed to establish a hotline between the White House and the Kremlin on exchanging certain information on cyber issues. They agreed on presidential commissions, which in the beginning of 2014 reported that they had a great success. By the way, the report came just probably a couple of weeks before the Crimea incident and the whole deterioration So there is already an experience of new Russian-American confidence-building measures. So I don't think that we should invent something new. We can renew the old confidence-building measures which have already been there. Mm -hmm. In this paper, you say a binding U.S.-Russia cyber treaty is out of the question, at least for now. So (laughs) looking back at the summit that just took place... Are you still not confident about that? Is it still out of the question or do you see any prospects for progress? Well, in my understanding, a legally binding treaty is a treaty which has to be not only signed by the presidents or the ministers, but has to be ratified by Congress and by Duma. And if I have any understanding of how American political system works, I seriously doubt that the Congress would agree on ratifying something on cybersecurity with Russia in any foreseeable future, even despite the fact that the Democratic Party right now has majority in both chambers. So this is basically the only reason why I'm skeptical that a legally binding treaty is possible in any foreseeable future. But it's amazing how political polarization and political instability in the United States affects Russian-American relations. 
I mean, I'm still skeptical. Before the things on the report might be negotiated officially, there has to be done a huge work in Russian domestic environment, which would result in changing this position. Mm -hmm. And there was this question that Russia has to acknowledge that it possesses the military cyber capabilities. And my point was not that Russia has to acknowledge that Russia possesses, but acknowledge the very idea that cyber can be a weapon. And this would open a huge door in discussing how this weapon is produced, how to control the production, how to control the proliferation, what expert control measures may or may not be applied, how they may or may not be applied. Because obviously we are discussing not something which is physically produced, right? Mm. Like a rifle or a tank, but something which consists of a code, something that consists of information and intellectual property. So I think that in general, dialogue is better than the lack of dialogue. And I understand all the problems that the United States have with Russian government, probably violating certain international law and human rights violations and everything. But this should not be a political issue. This is an issue of basically working out the norms of responsible behavior, because you want it or not, Russia will be a factor of international relations for many years ahead. I must admit, talking with Pavel Sharikov and with Meg King was challenging. The cyber realm is extraordinarily complex, and the level of distrust between Russia and the United States is high. There was one more person I spoke with to try to understand what the Biden-Putin summit might be able to accomplish. And that's Lauren Zabrick, executive director of the Cyber Project at the Belfer Center. Her team looked at the solar winds hack and determined that it did not appear to rise to the level of a cyber Pearl Harbor. At the same time, it went beyond traditional espionage targeting civilian infrastructure, private companies and networks, as well as government networks, even giving the hackers the potential ability to damage or destroy them. So what, if anything, did the summit accomplish? I think if we are even one inch closer to increased security, then I think it's a success. Now, Did we see an example of that? I'm not sure, but the fact that they've agreed to start talking about this, I think is very important. And I know a lot of people just didn't have very high expectations for the summit itself. So I think it'll be very telling what happens in the months and years after this. Both of our nations, really all nations, are so vulnerable to cyber threats from anyone. So we should really make it a priority to safeguard our countries from these cyber threats and really increase our resilience. Kenan X is a product of the Kenan Institute at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C. It's the Wilson Center's oldest program, founded in 1974 by George F. Kennan, American statesman, James Billington, historian and former Librarian of Congress, and historian S. Frederick Starr. Inspired by them, the Kennan Institute's mission is to improve America's understanding of Russia and the wider region. Thanks for listening.